All right, is anyone going to complain if I start a couple minutes early? Absolutely not. I didn't think so. <laughs> All right, well, I'll find something to charge you for during. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for our uh, opportunity we have here to come and study the life of Messiah, the life of Christ. Uh, we thank you that we have this recorded word, and we thank you for all four books that we get in. Uh, we, uh, we look forward to diving in. We pray that you guide us by your spirit and help us to understand some of these uh, things that we wrestle with in the word. We pray these things, Lord, in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right, I'm going to start out by reading the first 18 verses of John, just in case y'all didn't do any homework, which you're not required to do. So uh, here is John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For, he, for of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So this is the content of the majority of our study tonight. We're going to look at John's gene genealogy primarily. Um, and many of you have probably not heard before that this is a genealogy. A genealogy traces the source of a human being, and this is tracing the source of the divine God-man. This is a heavenly genealogy of Jesus Christ. So we've got two different kinds of genealogies in these four Gospels. We have a heavenly genealogy, from John, and we have two human genealogies tracing Jesus' two lines, one through Joseph, which was an adopted line, and one through Mary, which was his natural line. We do not have a genealogy in the book of Mark because Mark's gospel is about Jesus the servant. And a servant is not made important by his heritage. He is made important by his effective service. So it's natural that we have no genealogy in the Gospel of Mark. Now before we start looking at John's genealogy in more detail, we want to remember the purpose of John's Gospel, which is to reveal Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah, the Son of the one true God, the Savior of the world. So those are the themes that we will have identified here in this genealogy. We'll skip that. So you probably noticed, either in your homework or as I just read, that the word, word, comes up a lot in the first 18 verses of John. In the Greek, this is the word logos. Many commentators, as they go through and try to explain these first 18 verses of John, go immediately to what they're more comfortable with, which is Greek philosophy. They read third century philosophy into a first century setting, and in so doing, diminish what John is saying about Jesus Christ. Because we all remember, John is not a Greek philosopher, he is a Jewish fisherman. 
He is not studied in these higher circles of philosophy, but he is studied in that Jewish tradition in which he grew up, which is the tradition of the Jewish synagogues. Some commentators, when they recognize that John is Jewish and not Greek, like to go to another favorite Jewish writer, Philo. But Philo did not resist Hellenization. He did not resist becoming Greek in the same way that those in Israel had in the first century. So although we see a lot more... Uh, actually, here, let me first tell you how the Greeks diminished Jesus Christ by using Greek philosophy for logos, because here they only have two different meanings of logos. It's reason and speech. So these commentators will say that Jesus Christ came as the idea of God, as reason, logos, and the expression of God, being the speech of God. So in other words, there is room in their interpretation of logos to diminish him to nothing more than a prophet to not being God himself. But the claim John is making is that Jesus Christ is God himself. So when we look to Philo's use of logos, Philo, because he is a Jew, but speaking Greek, uses this word logos, and he uses it in a wider context than the Greeks did. He uses it as the image of God being light. He talks about Logos being light, the closest angel to God. But Philo never connects Logos as being God. He is the high priest or the mediator. He comes between God and Israel. But he is never God himself. He is the paraclete. He is the comforter, this Logos. But in Philo's writing, it is always something shadowy and unreal. It is never flesh. It is never something tangible or touchable, let alone a human being or a God with whom you can speak. There is no messianic connotation in Philo's writing when he uses this word logos. Instead, we have to remember that although John is writing in Greek, he is not writing with a Greek mindset. It would be the same thing as if we translated our English writing into Spanish. We would be using English concepts, English terms, and trying to find the best Spanish term to convey that meaning. John is not trying to convey a Greek meaning here. He is trying to convey a Jewish meaning to a Greek reading audience. So he is using this rabbinic doctrine of the Memra. Memra is the Aramaic word for word, which is a translation of the Hebrew word devar. But in the 400 years before Christ, this word Memra took on a different meaning, a deeper meaning, a more complete or complex meaning, not from Greek philosophy, but in the schools of Ezra, which were going through scripture and recognizing things that had before not been recognized. In other words, this came from intensive Bible study. They recognized that when the Old Testament uses this phrase, the word of God, it's using it in a very distinct way. It's not using it to say, God said, but it actually means that the word of God, a separate noun, a new head noun, is acting on behalf of God. And they recognized that although sometimes this acts apart from God, it is also identified with God. So here, unlike Philo and unlike Greek philosophy, the Memra is deity. It is God, but it is also distinct from God. Now, this is something which the Jewish rabbis struggled with. They couldn't explain this. That's why John is writing. He's explaining this concept that they recognized but had no answer for. He's saying, this man, Jesus, 
He is the answer for what you have seen in scripture for these last 400 years. Now, in order to see how the Jews saw this in that 400 years prior to Jesus Christ, we are going to look at a couple passages from Jewish Targums. Targums are translations of the Old Testament, especially translations into Aramaic. Now, the Jews in Israel were speaking Hebrew, but many of the Jews, because they had been brought into Babylon and other regions that spoke Aramaic, also spoke Aramaic. So in the synagogues, the scriptures would always be read in Hebrew, but they would also be read in Aramaic. So those who understood both would hear both the Targums in Aramaic and the Torah in Hebrew read aloud, and they would see these concepts paralleled. So we look here at the Targum Ankalos in the passage Genesis 3.8, and we see that they have added a concept of memra because they recognized something distinct about the word of God. So it says here, then, the, then they heard the voice of the memra of the Lord God walking in the garden towards the decline of the day. So Adam and his wife hid themselves before the Lord God within a tree of the garden. Now they've added this phrase, the memra of the Lord God. This is a translation, but they translate as a paraphrase. They are interpreting as translating. So they are saying this word of the Lord that they are hearing in the garden, walking among them, this word that they will see, this is the concept of memra. They're adding this in there, pointing out that, see, this is what we're talking about. There's something odd going on here when God uses the phrase, the word of God. But notice in the second part of this sentence, this Memra of the Lord God, which is walking in the garden, is also the Lord God himself. There is no distinction, or there is no, uh, there is no hard distinction between them, although there is a, there is a, that's a hard, that's a hard line to draw. There is a distinction, but they are the same thing. Here in Genesis 28, 21, Jacob states the Memra of the Lord will be my God. This is not a second God that he is stating is his God, but he recognizes that this word of the Lord that has spoken from heaven is God himself, but he recognizes that memra, that word of God, as being distinct. So this concept of the memra is deity, distinct and the same as God, but he is also the agent of creation. Now we've been studying Genesis in our Sunday mornings, so we, we can remember this pretty easily if we look back about four or five months now. From the beginning with wisdom, writes Targum Neophyte, the memra of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. And the memra of the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light according to the degree of his memra. What they've recognized is that the active verb in this sentence is not God, but the word of God, the word of God acting. So they have clarified that by adding in the memra of the Lord so that it is clearer to the reader that this word, which is acting, is acting on behalf of God, but distinct from God. Later in this Targum Neafiti, Genesis 14.22 states, Behold, I have lifted up my hand in an oath before the Lord, the Most High God, who by his memra created the heavens and the earth. This is a lot like what our Bible says. The actual inspired word of God, not a translation or a paraphrase affirms these very points because it is the actual non-paraphrased Hebrew Bible that they were reading from and coming up with these doctrines, just in the same way as we come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. We recognize God is three in one. They are beginning to recognize here that God is at least two in one. And John is answering that question for them. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And in Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The concept of the Memra also extended to salvation. The Memra, by the understanding of the rabbis, was the agent by which God saves. Now, in the Old Testament, this primarily happened physically, God physically saving Israel from peril. But it was not unheard of in the Old Testament to use our New Testament understanding, which we almost uh, exclusively try to cram into pas the passages sometimes, which is salvation in a spiritual sense. In the Isaiah Targums, chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, in the memra of the God of my salvation, I trust, and will not be shaken. For the awesome one, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has spoken by his memra, and he has become for me a savior. Dispensationalists get a bad rap sometimes. People like to say we believe in different means of salvation. I think we're a little bit more consistent with the Old Testament because the object of salvation has always been God's word, God's promise. We believe in that which God has promised and he promises by his word. Though we did not know the man Jesus We've always been trusting in the man, Jesus, since the beginning of salvation history. Because the requirement has always been faith, and the basis has always been the death of Jesus, though that has not always been revealed in salvation history. But the object of faith has always been the Word of God. Though that content of what has been revealed is, at times, different. We have a progress of revelation. What we know about that Word of God, what He has chosen to reveal, gets greater as time goes on, as he chooses to reveal more of himself. Lastly, here in the Targum Neafiti in Leviticus 26.12, it says, And my memra will go among you, and my memra will be for you a redeeming God. And you shall be for my name a people of holy ones. Concept of the memra extends to God's visible form. God made visible to mankind. In John 1.14, we have a very unique word used. It says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But this word dwelt is not the normal word for dwelling in Greek. It is, oh, I had the calculation, it's, I think, 98% of the time, which might be with this being the only exception. Dwelled is translated with the Greek word maneo, which we get our English word remain, maneo, remain. Here they use this rare Greek word, skenao, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word mishkan, which is the word in Hebrew, which they get the word shekinah from. Because the Shekinah means God dwelling among his people in the tabernacle. That's what they called Shekinah. We think of light. For the Hebrew, it's fire, it's light, it's a cloud. Shekinah is the presence of God among his people. For this, we're going to turn to some Jewish commentaries called Midrash. These were a collection of... For these were collected after the time of Christ, but were the traditional comments on the Hebrew scriptures at the time of Christ that John is answering to. In the Midrash Rabbah from Numbers 13.2, it says, When did the Shekinah rest on the earth? 
on the day when the tabernacle was erected. As it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is a comment going back to Exodus 40, 34 as well. In the Targum Neophyte in Exodus 3, verse 4, it says it was manifest before the Lord that Moses had turned aside to see the memra of the Lord called to him from the midst of the thorn bush. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look on the glory of the Shekinah of the Lord. Now this is another Hebrew doctrine called the bat kol, which is the voice of God speaking down from heaven. Now there is a unique observation about the bat kol, that God's voice never speaks from heaven without also physically manifesting. So here when we have this voice of the Lord coming down, we see the physical manifestation in the uh, flaming bush. God makes himself visible by means of the memra, and he speaks by means of that same memra. Without the presence of the Lord, there is no word of the Lord. In the Jerusalem Talmud, it says the Jerusalem, or here is a quote about the Jerusalem Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud states that the patriarchs knew only the God of heaven, but God did not reveal to them the Lord's memra. This is the concept of progressive revelation. As we go along, God reveals more about himself. This Aramaic word of memra, the rabbis often identified with the Messiah, unlike Philo. They saw this concept of the memra as prophetic of the Messiah. It corresponds to the Greek word logos. Targum Jonathan says that my name, the Lord, I did not, however, reveal to them through my Holy Spirit. Again, in the Isaiah Targum, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which we often use as a Christmas prophecy, but we only use the first part of verse 6. It goes on to speak about the Messiah in his advent, his second advent. But it starts here, The prophet said to the house of David, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will accept the law upon himself to keep it, and his name will be called before the wonderful counselor. Now notice, they did not recognize here in their commentary that he would be the wonderful counselor. They interpreted this as before the wonderful counselor. They were not identifying the Messiah with God. Again, because of their doctrine, they could not explain some of these, but they recognized the doctrine of the Memra, at least the duality of God. Anyways, wonderful counselor, the mighty God existing forever, the Messiah in whose days peace will increase upon the earth, Great pride will belong to those who perform the law, and for those who keep peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to build it with judgment and with virtue from this time forth and forever. And how will this be done? By the memra of the Lord, of his hosts, this will be done. We have the memra acting to make the God, the one true God, visible. In Matthew 16, 27, it says, For the Son of Man, actually I should give you some background here, the manifestation of Jesus Christ on the earth was the manifestation of the Shekinah glory. For the entire time he dwelled upon the earth, he dwelled as the Shekinah glory. The difference was, this Shekinah glory was veiled, veiled with flesh. But there is an instance in which this veil could not contain the Shekinah glory. So we see that in Matthew 16, 27, when he says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then it is fulfilled. 
in the very next chapter. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And the result of this transfiguration was his face shone like the sun. The glory of God shone through his flesh. It no longer concealed the light of God's presence. His garments as well were affected, and they became white as light. Jesus is the visible manifestation of God. And although he took on flesh, it only veiled his glory. He was not different from his glory. The concept of the memory extended as well to the covenants. These covenants which have existed in God's interaction with mankind since the very first man, Adam. It was by means of the memory, the word of God, that he signed these covenants. We look at the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9.15, the interpretation in Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. It says, I will remember my covenant, which is between my memra and you, and every living thing of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When God swears on his word, he is swearing on something the same as him and yet distinct from him. The rabbis recognized this and distinguished it by means of the doctrine of the Memra. To Abraham, Targum Onkelos, Genesis 17.10, he says, This is my covenant which you shall preserve between my Memra and you and your descendants after you. And the uh, stipulation of the covenant, circumcise every male among you. This covenant was between Abraham and the memra of God as party to it. It's by his memra as well that he signs this covenant. In Genesis 15, 17, he says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Better way to look at this is simply smoke and flame, which pass between these pieces. This is how God manifests himself in the wilderness as the wilderness generation is following the Shekinah glory. At night, a pillar of fire, and by day, a pillar of smoke. This is what the Shekinah glory looks like. This is what the Memra looks like. Passing between these pieces of the sacrificed animals was the stamp of approval, was the signature of God on this covenant with Abraham. God himself in manifest glory, dwelling among Abraham, took upon himself both sides of this covenant. He was the party to the covenant, a promise given without condition to Abraham. He was the signer of this covenant by means of the Memra. And he is also a covenant ratifier by means of the Memra. In Luke 22, 20, Jesus, or saying, speaking of Jesus, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It was by the blood of the physical manifestation of God by means of the Shekinah glory in Jesus Christ that signed and ratified the new covenant for Israel. The memory is also the agent of revelation. And this is perhaps the clearest of all of these. It is the word of God that reveals things about God. That is one of the sub-themes of John as well. Targum Neafidi in Exodus 6.2 says, The Lord spoke with Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I was revealed in my memra to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as the God of the heavens. But my mighty name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. In Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, 
speaking of Sarah here in Genesis 16, she gave, no, this is Hagar. She gave thanks before the Lord whose Memra had spoken to her. And she spoke thus, you are the living and enduring one who sees but is not seen. For she said, behold, here indeed the glory of the Shekinah of the Lord was revealed, vision after vision. In our own Bible, Genesis 15.1, we see the word of God revealing things about God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not fear, Abraham. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. He comes to reveal the covenant that he is going to make with Abraham. And then by the same memory, he signs and seals the covenant. So let me give you Fruchtenbaum's summary here of John 1, 1 through 18. The word, the Devar in Hebrew, the Memra in Aramaic, which is the technical term we are using to define this doctrine. The Logos in Greek, the word John used, came in visible form in the person of Jesus Christ. This word that existed since the very speech act of creation, the word that was walking in the garden with Adam, the word that promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing, signed the covenants, protected Israel, has come in physical form in the person of Jesus. Sadly, the world in general failed to recognize him as such. John's argument in his gospel is to prove the fact that Jesus is indeed that person. Even more tragically, his own Jewish people failed to recognize him as well. Those individual Jews and Gentiles who did recognize him are the ones who became the children of the Shekinah light and received their salvation from him who is the agent of salvation. There are two human genealogies in the four Gospels. These are in Matthew and in Luke. The purpose of Matthew's Gospel was to reveal Jesus Christ as the promised King of the Jews. He is going to deal with issues about the royal line of David. In Luke, he is dealing with the issue of Jesus Christ being the Son of Man, a doctrine which is going to point to him being the one worthy to have dominion over all of creation, one who is able to save man as a brother to them. In these genealogies, we'll look at why there are two, why did we need both of these, some unique aspects to Matthew's genealogy. Luke's is very regular because Luke was writing a very regular history. Well, he was writing a very incredible history, but in a very regular form. We're going to deal with that issue of David's throne and then some of the messianic titles used for Jesus, and that will conclude our class tonight. So we start here in Luke. Luke 3.23 says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed. I don't know how many of you pulled that out, but it's a little odd, and it's kind of hard to understand what exactly Luke is saying here. As was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now this is not difficult for us to understand, except that the rabbis say that Eli is Mary's father not Joseph's. So why is Joseph's name in here? Well, it's for the same reason as I might say, uh, I might ask our dear friend Al here, why is Mrs. Albert Washaba not here tonight? Because Joseph is being substituted here for Mary's name. And how do we know that? We have two bits of evidence. One is this technical Greek term, which is used, namitzo, which means common law or recognized under the law. That means that Jesus is recognized as Joseph's son under the law. He is an adopted son of Joseph. That doesn't explain that this is not Joseph's line, but that does show that this is not Joseph, or that this is not Jesus, that this is, 
Hang on. Let me show you the second evidence. Joseph's name is the only one that is distinguished from the rest. Joseph's name pulls out. Joseph's name does not have a definite article before it, which is a natural way of creating a genealogy. And this is Luke, who is interested in creating a natural, normal genealogy. He's going to do everything to code, in other words. So when we see something stand out, it stands out for a purpose. And he makes Joseph's name stand out in a very regular Greek way. When it does not belong naturally in the genealogy, you do not connect it naturally to the genealogy. It's as if Luke has placed parentheses around Joseph's name. So when he then says that Joseph is his father by means of law, but not necessarily naturally, we understand then that Joseph is a placeholder here. Who is he a placeholder for? Mary. Why is he a placeholder for Mary? Because Luke is making a regular genealogy. He's not doing anything weird here, and it is not normal to put a female's name in a genealogy. Luke would be breaking his own rules if he put Mary's name here. So Joseph, as is the regular custom of the day, is standing in for Mary. And Luke does everything within his power to point to that fact. Everything short of breaking his own rules and writing Mary's name in this genealogy. So in Matthew's genealogy, we get Joseph's family tree. And in Luke's, we get Mary's family tree. Now, this is also supported in that as we continue reading in Matthew, we'll see that it comes from Joseph's perspective. Matthew is writing the things that are happening to Joseph around the event of the birth of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, he is writing about the events of Mary surrounding the birth of Jesus, including her thoughts. Remember, she was probably a first-hand source for Luke. Now, Matthew does have a very unique genealogy in that he is writing to the Jews, but he is breaking all of their rules. I think this is one reason why I love Matthew. He loves to break rules in writing form. But you have to be very good at your writing form to know which rules to break. He is a Jew, and he is writing to a Jewish audience and purposefully breaking these rules so they pay attention. He's done two weird things which are against the customary way of creating a genealogy in Jewish tradition. He has included four women in this genealogy. And he has also skipped three generations. We start with the women. He has included Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, there are three interesting things about these women. And I think those point to the reason why Matthew has included these. There is a bad answer. Oh, no. That's when we get to the skip generations. For these women, he has included a Canaanite, two Canaanites, a Moabitess, and a Hittite. That means they're not Jewish. These are not Jewish women. He has included Gentiles in a Jewish genealogy. Matthew is preparing the church, which at this time consists only of Jews, for the acceptance of Gentiles into the church, just as God had made provision for Gentiles to enter into Israel by proselytizing. Here, Matthew is preparing them that God's work is sufficient for the Gentiles as well. It's not just to the Jews. It's to the Jews first, which is what they are currently experiencing at the time they receive this gospel, but it is not the end of God's plan. These four women were also sinners, just like the rest of us, but Matthew has pointed to their sin by choosing four women who were involved in the same kinds of sin. Tamar committed incest and prostitution with Judah. Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess, which was the product of incest. In Genesis 19, 36 through 37, we have the event of Lot and his two daughters. Moab was the product of Lot and his oldest daughter. We also have Bathsheba, who was an adulteress 
In Matthew 1.6, it says that Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Now, in the NASB, it says Bathsheba, but Bathsheba is not in the Greek text. It says that David was the father of Solomon by her of Uriah. Her of Uriah is another way of saying the wife of Uriah. Matthew is underlining three times the fact that Bathsheba was an adulteress here, or rather that Solomon was the product of an adulterous relationship. Why has Matthew included the names of four sinning Gentiles? Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world from a perfect pedigree. He came into the world from a perfect God for a perfect purpose to save imperfect people. These four women also represent four eras of Jewish history. Tamar was present during the era of patriarchs, Rahab during the conquest, Ruth during judges, and Bathsheba during the kingdom, the kingdom of David. What I think Matthew is doing here is pinpointing the era of Jewish history in which Jesus Christ has come to fulfill the kingdom. This is the purpose of Matthew's gospel, is to show us that Jesus is the king. So why then is he skipping generations? He writes 41 different generations, but there are actually 44 between Adam and Jesus, or Adam and Abraham. Abraham and Jesus. I haven't had enough coffee today. In Matthew 1, 8 through 9, we are not even indicated that there is an omission here. It goes directly from Joram to Isaiah. And this bothers people, especially non-Christians or liberal Christians, because in 1 Chronicles 3, 8 through 12, we get those three names that come between Joram and Isaiah. Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. Now, should I name names? The uh, Gospel Coalition has a very bad answer for this. He says, well, those three kings were exceptionally evil, so Matthew did not include them. Well, this has nothing to do with the purpose for Matthew writing his gospel. He's not avoiding putting in wretched sinners. He included four women for the purpose of the fact that they are sinners. And he includes Jeconiah, who we have evidence was probably worse than Ahaziah, Joash, or Amaziah. No, he has done this for a very specific purpose because he's not recording a temple genealogy. They have access to genealogies. They can go to the temple and see what were Jesus' ancestors. No, he's crafting an argument. So he uses Hebrew gematria and stylizes this genealogy after three generations of 14. He goes from Abraham to David, to Jeconiah, to Jesus. These three names he wants to highlight. If he did not omit these three names in Jesus' history, then Jeconiah would not be the 14th from David. And he needs Jeconiah's name in here because that has everything to do with the royal line to Joseph. The gematria works like this. Each number in Hebrew is assigned, or each letter in Hebrew is assigned a numerical value. When they are added together, you get a sum total. The sum total which we are getting is 14 from the name David. Dalet Vav Dalet, which in English would be DVD. So if Solomon wanted to call his father old man, he would just have to call him VHS. That's a Dane original, and I am not charging extra for it. 
But the name Jeconiah is very important in Joseph's line. It's highlighted here. Aren't you glad you came, Susanna? <laughs> in Matthew 1, verses 11 and 12, Jeconiah's name is stated twice. And the event around his name is highlighted as well, twice. It says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. <laughs> it's not that easy for me to say, trust me. <laughs> Jeconiah is important. Why is Jeconiah important? Because Jeconiah's descendants cannot inherit the throne of David. In Deuteronomy 17.15, actually, let me preface this. The three names, Abraham, David, and Jeconiah, all have historical relevance. Abraham indicates that Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew by adoption through Joseph's line and naturally through Mary's line. Now you can inherit Jewishness by adoption through the father, but if your father is a Gentile, you receive it through your mother. Jesus had a natural Jewish mother. His Jewishness comes through his mother not through his father, but he is a Jew nonetheless, a child of Abraham, a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says here in Deuteronomy 17, 15, the requirement for a king in Israel is that he be one from among their countrymen. That Jesus is. That Joseph is. But in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 12, it says that they also must be from the line of David. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. The throne of David will go to a descendant of David. There's an issue with David's descendants, though. His kingdom was divided into two parts. And the requirement for inheriting the throne of either one was different. For the southern king, it remained that the king must be from the line of David. But for the northern kingdom, which we'll deal with later, you had to be divinely appointed by God. So if anyone wanted to sit on the throne of David, which was a united kingdom, he had to fulfill both requirements, both for the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and the Messiah would unite both kingdoms together. So the issue then of this divided kingdom, I guess I could skip this. In 1 Kings 11 and 12, we see why the kingdom was divided. We see that 12 where 10 of the tribes were given to Jeroboam, who is from the tribe of Ephraim, not Judah, cannot be the king over all of Israel, but he is divinely appointed as the king of the northern tribes. Later, Jehu's, Jehu will be divinely appointed to that throne, and God will say that four of his generations after him will sit there. He is divinely appointed four further generations. So when the fifth generation tries to take the throne, he's assassinated. He was not divinely appointed to sit on the throne of the northern kingdoms. But here the issue of the southern kingdom remains the house of David. In order to be the king of Judah, that is the southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin, you had to be from the house of David. So we have the first half of the requirement here. You have to be a Jew, and you have to be from the house of David. But there is one more requirement, and that has to do with the third name that Matthew highlights, Jeconiah. Jeconiah went by a few different names in the Hebrew Scripture, and this had to do a lot with what was going on 
in the day of Jeconiah. They have Egyptian influence and they have Babylonian influence. So the names are sometimes hard to understand without a lexicon. But Jeconiah is, the, uh, is also called Jehoiakim. He is the son of Jehoiakim, who is also called Eliakim. He is the son of Jehoiakim's wife, Nehushta, as well. Sometimes he's called Konia, which is a nickname for Jeconiah. This is his name in Jeremiah. So in 2 Kings 24, we see him ascend to his throne. Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, that is his dad, and Jehoiakim, that's Jeconiah, his son became king in his place. The king of Egypt did not come out of his land again. Why is this important? Important because Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, placed Jehoiakim, his father, as the king over Israel. He was a puppet king for Egypt. And he was an evil king at that. He was a Jew. You kind of say in the same way that Herod ruled over first century Israel. He was a puppet king. So here Jehoiakim was a puppet king and his son Jehoiakim was as well. They were from the house of David. But they were placed there, not for God's purposes, but for uh, Pharaoh Necho's purposes. So the king of Egypt did not come out of the land again, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Jehoiakim was not a good king by any means. He was worse than those three kings which Matthew skips. Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now this is the same statement made about all the evil kings. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. But this evil receives a special curse. In 2 Kings 24, that's not right. My heading is wrong here. It's Jeremiah 22, verse 30. It says, Thus says the Lord, write this man, speaking of Jeconiah, down as childless. Record his name in the histories as if he has no descendants. A man who will not prosper in his day, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So this third part of the requirement for taking the throne of the southern kingdom is that it cannot be a descendant from Jeconiah. What has Matthew gone to great length to claim but that Joseph was a descendant of Jeconiah? His descendant cannot inherit the throne. But here's another good thing. In the rule of Israel, an adopted son cannot inherit his father's royal prerogative. Even if Joseph were not from the line of Jeconiah, Jesus Christ could not become king by means of adoption. Matthew solves this problem for us. In Matthew 1.18, the very next verse after he finishes the genealogies, he shows that this seeming problem is no problem at all because Jesus was not born in the line of Jeconiah. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with a child by the Holy Spirit. Luke's gospel shows us that Mary is from the house of David. But she is not from the house of David by means of Solomon going to Jeconiah. He is, she is the daughter of David by means of Nathan. And so Jesus subverts the curse of Jeconiah. It does not apply to him. But Jesus does not receive his ability to sit on the throne from Joseph. He receives it through Mary. He is a son of David through Mary. 
Lastly, we're going to look at these messianic titles used in these genealogies, and one from outside these genealogies, but which is pertinent to John's argument. And that is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Adam, and the son of God. Matthew 1.1 records that Messiah was the son of David. As the son of David, he can fulfill the Davidic covenant, which promises to David an eternal descendant, that the line of David would never die out. There would always be someone. And through Mary, there was someone. When we look at the uh, advent of Christ in our next session, we'll see how an angel claims that Mary herself is the fulfillment of this. It also promises to David an eternal king, that not only would there be a descendant, but there would be one worthy to sit on the throne. It promises an eternal throne. There will always be a place for the king to sit. And it promises a kingdom. There will always be a kingdom over which that king can rule. As the son of Abraham, he is party to the Abrahamic covenant, which promises land to Israel. Jesus has not yet fulfilled this promise, but the person of Jesus Christ will fulfill this at his second advent. And he can because he is the son of Abraham. He fulfills the seed promise, which was amplified in the Davidic covenant. And he fulfills the blessing of the new covenant, which promises a new heart to Israel regeneration. It promises them security. It promises them perfection. And they are perfected by the new covenant. We get to benefit from those spiritual blessings of this new covenant. The covenant is a Jewish covenant. But you could say it spills over to the Gentiles who have become grafted on to the stump of Israel's blessings. As the son of Adam, recorded in Luke 3, Jesus Christ has the right to have dominion over this earth. It is a man who must rule over this earth. God created this creation for that purpose, that man would rule. Man showed himself incapable through Adam, but through Jesus, the second Adam, he becomes capable. Jesus Christ, as the son of Adam, the son of Eve, can also fulfill this promise of a victor over the enemy. Jesus Christ crushes the head of the serpent. As the son of Adam, he can also redeem as a kinsman redeemer his people. And so in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine, we see a shade of this meaning when he records, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus Christ does not shed his flesh. Jesus Christ came as a man to become a man. He is still our kinsman, redeemer. And lastly, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now this is not directly in the genealogy of John, but John's genealogy is not conventional. We go a few verses forward to his second argument, and we see him say, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham, we have another unique doctrine called the hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God, and he is fully human. He is eternal, and as eternal, he alone can fulfill eternal covenants. As the Son of David promised an eternal king, no king besides an eternal one can fulfill that. 
next week, Messiah's advent, leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ and including his birth. Read Luke 1, 5 through 80, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and the birth narrative, Luke 2, 1 through 20. The homework is actually lessons 4 through 11 this week. Last week I, I told you that too, so maybe you're ahead of the game. All right, so let's pray, and then I will see you all next week. Dear Lord, we thank you for these genealogies. Uh, sometimes we skip right through them, but when we spend some time on them, we see that you have revealed yourself through them. We thank you for this revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ. We thank you for these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.